I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. And now we're live for real. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to the Theology and Apologetics uh, live stream, which I do pretty much every Tuesday. Most Tuesdays, right at this time, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or whatever that is for you personally. Um, What we're going to do right now is a a continued refutation. This is part two, although it will stand alone. You don't have to see the first part to to get a good, good, you know, blessing out of what I'm doing today. Learn a lot from it. Um, But this is part two of a refutation of Aaron Ra's video that's meant to attack fulfilled prophecy in the Bible, to say that the Bible has no fulfilled prophecy. And that is what he says, none, no fulfilled prophecy, and that ultimately uh, Christians are just ridiculously abusing the text of scripture when we pretend we have fulfilled prophecy. Sorry, my uh, cat suddenly needs attention. Um, So, and we did settle on Mika for the cat name, for those that are the cat people watching, dog people, sorry, get over it. Um, So Mika is the cat name. Um, So what we're going to do right now is just kind of give you a quick little recap on why this is important. Um, Aaron Ra is a very well-known skeptic and atheist on YouTube. He's got 185,000 subscribers and 500 as of today. And his uh, video has, I don't know if it was 60 or 70 or 80,000 views, something like that. And the video is full of, of simply untrue things. And I tried to, not in a way of attacking him, but just answer the issues, right? Deal with, bring the issues out and handle them and deal with them. That's my goal. And I did that last week and I continue this week um, because this matters, because of what prophecy means. You see, if the Bible has fulfilled prophecy, real genuine fulfilled prophecy, then we can say that the information in the scriptures, it, it has information that must have come beyond simply the mind of man. Right? If it has a legitimate, honest-to-goodness, fulfilled prophecy, it's a case for the inspiration of the scriptures that God, the God of the Bible, inspired the writers of the Bible uh, to put it together. It's a pretty beautiful and amazing thing, actually. And, um, and let's see, just so you know where we're coming from, here again is the clip from the end of Arn's video. This is kind of the main point he comes to, to kind of set the tone for what we're going to be doing today. I asked Christians to give me their favorite examples of fulfilled prophecy. And the ones I just talked about were the best y'all could do. Nothing that was unambiguous, meaningful, or in any way helpful or compelling, nor that even met the minimum criteria required to be fulfilled. Christians brag that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, but if they're all as contrived as these, then it's no wonder the Jews are still Jewish. It's a wonder any of you still believes in God at all. So again, just the strong confidence. In fact, that's one of the strongest things you'll see is just, uh, Aaron says a lot of things that are simply untrue, as I've demonstrated already and will continue to demonstrate. Uh, but the confidence with, with which he says it is just intense. Um, and that that is really the real drive of a lot of the atheist stuff I see online is the confidence and casualness with which they just throw off scripture and deny its claims. Um, So we're going to actually deal with these issues um, one by one. We're going to talk about this stuff. And just so everybody knows, here's the tweet Aaron put out. This matters for today's video, right? Aaron put out, before he made his video, he says on Twitter, hey, I often hear that there were hundreds of prophecies supposedly fulfilled in the Bible, but I rarely hear any specific examples. So tell me your favorite one, citing chapter and verse. 
um, a gentleman actually um, tweeted him back, and it was Ichabod the Bogged. He says, "Hey, Mike Winger's done the the legwork for me," and so he referenced Aaron to my video online about the destruction of Tyre. We're going to deal with this specific prophecy today. Actually, one of my favorite prophecies. And then, of course, I said to Aaron, "Hey, mind if I uh, do a video response to your video?" And the reason why I asked is because of this. Aaron was given my video. And his video, where he refutes Ezekiel's prophecy of the destruction of Tyre, his refutation, to me, demonstrates that he didn't watch my video or didn't think about the things that I had to say in that video. And so if he wants our best examples of prophecy, and he responded to this as a best one, he got my my content as a response, I feel as though I'm responding here to his response to me. So here's my response to his response to me, based upon that little Twitter thing, the drama, the Twitter drama. All right. So, real quick recap from last week. This was, to me, the most telling moment of all of last week's content. It was this moment right here where Aaron put up a list of prophecies that he says a Jewish Messiah has to fulfill. And he also says Jesus fulfilled none of these. And these were things like Jesus has to be Jewish. I mean... Jesus was Jewish, guys, right? He has to be the member of the tribe of Judah, descendant of David. Jesus was this as well. Um, basically, we went through this list and I ex explained how even based on Aaron's own terms, his case falls apart. And it was em embarrassingly bad when it comes to just the just the truthfulness of things. Um, so let's now pick up today. That's all in last week's video and you can get into that. Um, so today, let's start with this clip right here here. Listen carefully to what Aaron says, and I'll respond. Himself said that some, but not all, of his disciples would still be alive to see him return to earth in the clouds at the right hand of power. But every one of his disciples are dead now, and our boy is at least 1950 years late. So I think it's safe to say we've been stood up. He ain't coming. All right, so in this first example, you know, we have Mark 16, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And all three of these mention where Jesus is like, hey, some of the people who are standing here, you're going to see me in my glory or in my kingdom, or uh, you'll, you'll see basically a revelation of something. It's worded slightly differently in the different texts. Um, and he says, hey, Jesus was supposed to come back right away. And he didn't come back right away, i.e., Therefore, Jesus's prophecy failed. This is a different tactic than what we've talked about so far in his videos, because now he's, he's specifically saying Jesus had false prophecies. Now I have, and it's in the link, or the link is in the video description here. I have a video on whether or not Jesus was a false prophet. This gets into several various passages of scripture and I'll, I'll you know, skip to the end, right? Spoiler alert. He was not a false prophet. But I unpack those issues carefully and thoughtfully in that video, and you're welcome to look there. It's from a live stream I did, I don't know, it was like four months ago, I think. Um, but this particular passage where he is quoting in Matthew, um, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what's interesting is he's, he doesn't say, I'm coming back and lots of people will see me in this generation. Rather, what he says is, some people who are standing here right now, some are going to see what let's see me in my in my kingdom see me in my glory and then what happens next in all three of the gospels this is recorded the very next event is what we call the transfiguration so we look at this and we say he predicts that some some select group will see me and then the next thing's a transfiguration where they go up to this mountaintop and Jesus is transfigured and he's in his glory. And we see Moses and Elijah come with him. And we see God the Father speaking and saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. 
I mean, there's Jesus in his kingdom and it's only some of the people, you know, Peter, James, John, the, the, the trio. And so we would look at that as the fulfillment. Now, this is not contrived because this is contextual. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every passage that has this quote from, that Aaron quoted, everyone, literally the very next verse is the transfiguration of Jesus all three times. So that's just a contextual thing. You just look at the Bible in context and you let it speak. Now, some are not going to like this. Um, but the truth is they don't like it because they want Jesus to be a false prophet and they're not interested in looking, some, some people just not interested in looking at context to understand things um, as they were written. Now we're going to look at what Aaron says about qualifications for prophecy because I was asked about this um, in the Q&A at the end of last week's live stream and people were like, what was the, what was the qualifications Aaron give? And I said, he didn't really give clear qualifications. Well, he gives, he does give something here. So listen up. This is what Aaron thinks, um, we have to have to call something a good prophecy. Definitely have a time limit. Without that, you can't claim success either. I'm going to back it up a bit. Here we go. For a prophecy to have any value at all, it should state clearly and unambiguously what's going to happen, to whom, where, and when, and not in symbolic lingo that has to be decoded. It should be something that wouldn't have happened eventually anyway, but if it is, then it should definitely have a time limit. Without that, you can't claim success either, because anything that can happen will happen if given enough time. Okay, so I'm going to put them on screen right here. These are the qualifications that Aaron just gave. It's got to be clear and unambiguous. It won't happen anyways. And failing number two, if it's something that would happen eventually anyways because of the sake of time, then it has to have a time limit. Now, I'm going to say these are actually pretty good qualifications. I actually agree with these and I will add to them. Here's some that I will add to make it harder. Okay. Um, number four, we have to confirm that it happened. So we need like a historical confirmation that the fulfillment did in fact take place. Number five, um, it was better than an educated guess, right? Um, I'm okay if it's something that would eventually happen if, if it couldn't be predicted through simply going, um, I'm a good politician, I can just tell what's going to happen, you know, that that's no good, right? It can't be just an educated guess. And of course, number six, the prophecy has to be written before the fulfillment. That's also very important. Now these, this list of six, these are actually pretty much the same um, things I use when I was doing my own study on fulfilled prophecy in my evidence for the Bible series. So I, I want it to be clear, unambiguous, at least um, it doesn't mean it can't be poetic, right? Things can be poetic and clear, or poetic and ambiguous or unclear. It can't happen anyways. If, if it's going to happen anyways, it has to have a time limit so it can be restricted. We have to confirm that it happened. Better than educated guess and written before the fulfillment. That, that would be, okay, these are my list of qualifications. So I, I think, though, I got to take exception to something he said at the beginning of that clip. He said, if, a pro if prophecy is to have any value at all, then it has to meet these qualifications. And here I'm going to stop and go, hey, let's think a little more carefully about this issue. Um, what I should say, instead of any value at all, this is just a clarity point, is it's not that the prophecy has no value. It's that if it doesn't have those qualifications, it has no, I should say, it doesn't have the particular value that it proves the inspiration of scripture to people who are many, many generations after the writing of the text. Do you get that? Like, for me, so distant from the original writing of the text, I need those qualifications if I'm using it to prove the Bible's true. But I can have prophecy that has nothing to do with proving the truth of the Bible, that is merely meant to teach theology or explain the Bible better, to understand it in its context, to simply understand it. What is this book about? What is this author writing? What is the theology that's being taught in this passage? 
So it has good meaning still. Um, also, you know, if you lived at the time of Isaiah, and Isaiah's writing prophecy that doesn't take place for 300 years, that's of very little value to you who lives contempor- contemporaneously with Isaiah. What did Isaiah do, though? What did Jeremiah do? What did Ezekiel do? What did these guys do? They actually had two different kinds of prophecy, if I generalize. They had short-term prophecy and long-term prophecy. Now, the short-term prophecy would have been really important to the people alive in the day. They would have been like, remember six months ago when Isaiah said this? It just happened. To them, that proves Isaiah is a prophet. To us, how do we prove that that, that Isaiah said it six months before it happened? It was so contemporaneous with him. This far removed, we can't prove it. So we use long-term prophecy for us. I need it to be spaced away from the events of Isaiah's day far enough that I can say, yeah, that was really prophesied ahead of time, fulfilled afterwards. Um, Do you get, there's, in other words, it's more complicated than that. I don't just say it has no value if it doesn't prove the text of scripture to be inspired to a generation, you know, 1500 years, 2000 years removed. That's not no value. That's just not that value. Um, so some's theological, some short-term prophecy, some's long-term prophecy. Um, if, if you're interested, I actually have a video I just put out yesterday called uh, Why Bible Prophecy Confuses You. <laughs> and, and that explains some more of this kind of stuff. There's a link in the video description here, I think. For that, if not, go to my channel. I, I just, just put it up yesterday. Um, so let's look at these qualifications, right? The Bible must be or the prophecy must be clear and unambiguous. Again, my only caveat um, is um, one ambiguous statement in a prophecy doesn't disqualify the whole thing, right? If I have a big, long list of statements, clear, 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 I don't know what that means, clear, 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 I don't throw the whole thing out. That would, I mean, that would just be silly. I look at it thoughtfully, carefully. Um, so, yeah. But I, I, I do need to be able to say it's clear in this sense. It can't be easily applied and reasonably applied to a whole bunch of different events throughout history. Like if it can be applied to 20 different fulfillments, then how is that really going to help me with prophecy? Um, it won't happen anyways. We talked about that. It has to have a, a, a time limit. Um, it, I, here, I, again, I don't agree that it has to have a time limit only that it needs a time limit if it's a particular kind of prophecy. See, if it's less specific, then it needs more of a time limit to just give it more specificity, right? Um, he also says in his video, anything that can happen, I'm quoting Aaron now, anything that can happen will happen if given enough time. Now, this is like, this is obviously untrue, right? Like anything that can happen won't happen. I mean, the USA could have been the first person to get someone into space, did that happen? No. If I give enough time, will the USA, will the, the United States be the first per- people or group to get, no, it's already happened, right? It wasn't the United States. It was, that was Russia. Um, Barack Obama could have declared war on Canada. That could have happened. But no matter how much time you wait, it's never going to happen. You know, it's not going to happen. I could become an atheist, but no matter how much time you give, that's not going to happen. I mean, I, I could just make up things all day long. And besides, if I say anything that can happen will happen if given enough time, if this is really something I believe, then I, I better believe in God because if God even could happen, then apparently God did happen because he had enough time, which, uh, which I wouldn't put it quite that way. But hey, if you follow that, that, that you should be a theist. Um, okay, then I've, I have my addition, so we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Um, Arend, in this next passage, he again attacks the idea that Jesus... Um, 
gave, gave us good prophecy, specifically Jesus now. So listen to what he says about Jesus. And then I want to show you that Aaron is, and, and I, I don't totally blame him here, right? A lot of people take this passage out of context because they quote it without reading it. They, they pass it along and maybe you've done this. Now is maybe a chance to rethink the way you view this passage in the book of Matthew. So here, listen to what he says about supposedly Jesus's wrong prophecy. Jesus's prophecy for the end times. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ who will mislead many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. And people hear this and think, wow, that's how it is now. Well, of course it is. That's how it's always been. Every year for the last couple millennia, at least, has met every one of those criteria. Okay, so here's the passage. Matthew 24. I'm going to bring it up on the screen for you guys to see. Matthew 24, 4. And let me bring up my, um, there we go. Right there for you to see. Let's read it in context. Now, you may have heard, hey, there's earthquakes. Does that mean Jesus is coming back? Increased earthquakes? Or in, there's a lot of wars going on. There's famines. Like That's the opposite of what Jesus meant. And this is something I've shared before, and I'll probably share it again because I think people need to hear it. Um, look at what Jesus says in context, right? Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying i'm the christ and they will lead many astray you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet wars and rumors of wars are things that should not alarm you about the coming of christ there's a war over here there's a fam this is not no jesus is literally giving us a list of things to not panic about not be alarmed about Wars, rumors of wars, verse 7. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now, if Jesus was coming back in 10 minutes after the, after the resurrection, like, how is it that all this wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, People, uh, Christians being murdered, killed for his namesake, and people falling away, betraying one another. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise, leading many astray. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus is giving a list of things that don't mean he's coming yet. This is just, yes, expect it, this stuff will happen. Aaron quotes it as though it's the opposite of that. Now, again, I, lots of people do. A lot of people get this wrong. You just have to read the passage in context. In the passage, Jesus does give one particular sign that does signal his second coming, and that is in verse 15. So what do we look for? See, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, uh, by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, that would be in the temple, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and, and he gives instruction specifically to the, to the Jewish people at that time. Um, now, this is, of course, a topic for another video to get into great detail, but the abomination of desolation, effectively, here's, a, here's an antichrist, the antichrist character, he comes into the temple, he's doing he's making some sort of horrible evil type sacrifice in the temple this will require a rebuilt temple for this to take place um and and that's the big sign that's the big sign right uh, there's a lot more details there i just don't have time for in today's stream because we haven't even talked about ezekiel 26 yet and that's like probably the most important thing for us to cover today 
So I hope you can see this where he says Jesus has got, you know, bad prophecy. Um, that's not the passage in context. Now he's going to repeatedly accuse us later on. I'll play the clip Christians of manipulating and twisting the text of the Bible. Like we don't care what it means and we'll just make up stuff. And I'm just going to say, I'm not the one doing that. Um, instead, I really, really do care what the text says. And the text says a long time, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, wars, these things do not should not alarm you. That just happens. Persecution, that happens. The preaching of the gospel throughout the world, that's all going to happen. Watch for this one sign, which has not happened yet. So now let's dig into probably what's the meatiest part of today, which is the destruction of Tyre. So I'll preface it with this. Um, Arn, I'm going to play Arn's clip. Then I'm going to explain to you this whole prophecy from Ezekiel. We'll look at Ezekiel 26. I'll show you a little PowerPoint I've got for that. And I'll explain it in more detail. Try to remember Aaron's specific claims. So he's going to talk about why he thinks this prophecy failed. And then I'm going to respond. And I'm going to respond to him the same way I already responded in the video that was sent to him about Ezekiel 26. So this is, um, this is kind of covering old territory. But now you can hear both sides of the argument because his, uh, his video doesn't do that. And I love doing that. So here's, here's Aaron on Ezekiel 26, the destruction of Tyre. There were a couple other prophecies that were plainly stated and included an expiration date, and both of them failed too. For example, Ezekiel prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, would conquer the city of Tyre and destroy it utterly, breaking down all the walls, streets, and towers, and killing or driving away everyone therein. Then God was supposed to step in and cause the city to sink beneath the deep and be lost forever. It would never be found again because it would be unrecognizable, just an uninhabitable rock in the midst of the waters, no more than a place for fishermen to spread their nets. But none of that ever happened. Nebuchadnezzar never took the island city. Someone else did a century or so later, but not the guy who was prophesied to do it. And the city was quickly rebuilt when it wasn't supposed to be, and people still live there when it was supposed to be abandoned because the island never sank. Every part of this prophecy failed, and Okay, I, I paused him there because he, he moves on to a different issue, different whole different prophecy. Um, okay, so every, quote, every part of this prophecy failed. Every part. This is, Aaron does this a lot where he makes these big, bold statements that are utterly untrue. It's just not true. Um, so we're going to look at Ezekiel 26. We're going to look and see, does it say that an island will sink? Did that fail to happen? Is that what it claims? Is Nebuchadnezzar the only guy that's supposed to do all these things? What really did Ezekiel 26 say in context? Here's, here it is right there with my PowerPoint magical abilities. I know my PowerPoints are terrible, but they're educational. So Ezekiel 26, this is the prophecy about the destruction of Tyre. Um, now things to remember, Tyre was the capital of the Phoenician empire. That is why Tyre is important. This is, what, this is why it's in the text. The, the Phoenicians are in big trouble. God judges their capital city to represent the nation. Keep it in mind. This is just the context. The capital of Phoenicia, um, Tyre, was over here where that red arrow points. Right? Uh, there we go. Right over there. Um, and it was, it was co a coastal city. And it included both, both the land-based um, city as well as an island that was off the coast, but the main city, unlike what Aaron says, this is just history, guys. The main city was on the land, the, the mainland, not the island. There was a little island, uh, small island like fort, but that was not the main city of Tyre at the time. 
Okay, so we're going to get into specific details here. Um, Tyre, being the capital of the Phoenician Empire, it was kind of a big deal. They, they loved their city. They called it the Queen of the Seas, and this was because it controlled trade throughout the whole Mediterranean Sea. All of the Mediterranean trade that happened right along the coast, you know, the populated areas are near the coast there. And um, Tyre controlled the trade there and was very, very wealthy because of it. And they would ship stuff inland from uh, from the Mediterranean through Tyre, the city. It was considered impregnable and it, it had been for 2,000 years, had been standing, continuously occupied for 2,000 years. Nobody had torn down that city, which is pretty rare for cities in that day to last for that long. Now, this is what Ezekiel says about the city. And I've under underlined some words. I want to highlight those for a second. I will get rid of my face so you can read it. Okay, Ezekiel 26, verse 1. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause, and I'll highlight already, many nations, not just Nebuchadnezzar, right? He says this is all, Aaron says it's just Nebuchadnezzar. The, the first sentence of the prophecies is many nations to come up against you. And then it describes how, as the sea causes its waves to come up, many sea or many nations, many waves. That's the context. So we see like a repeated action that happens one after the other. That's the concept. Uh, verse four, um, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. What are they going to do specifically? Destroy the walls, break down her towers, and I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. That's a pretty, now this is super specific. We're talking specificity. This city is supposed to have the dust scraped off of it and um, the not only the towers broken down, but this, this really top of the rock. And then verse five, it shall be a place for spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I've spoken, says the Lord God, it shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages, which are in the field shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is very, very, very specific stuff here. Um, that's the general like overview. And then we're going to continue. And God's going to tell us now breaking it down. That was the overview. Here's the breakdown of how it'll go down as we just continue reading in Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and with an army with many people. Now pay attention to the pronouns here. There's a he, and later on we'll get to a they. He is obviously Nebuchadnezzar. That's just reading it in context, right? He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. Now, daughter villages, hi, I'm back. Daughter villages are, so there's the, the main city, Tyre, but there would be farming villages and smaller communities all around Tyre that would be trading with them, coming to Tyre for shopping and things like that. They're called the daughter villages and they would be protected by Tyre. In times of war, even you, when you barricade the walls in, the daughter villages are not protected anymore. So specifically, Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the daughter villages. That's one of the things he'll do. That's outside the walls of Tyre, by the way. Um, he will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. A siege mound, uh, the idea of a siege is simply camping out around a city, blocking off the farming and the, and the water and the food from coming into the city till you just starve people out because you'd rather not fight them with their big scary walls. So that's the idea of the siege. Let's read on. Because of the abundance of his, Nebuchadnezzar's, horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots when he enters your gates. So Nebuchadnezzar has to what? Enter their gates. As men who enter 
a city, as miniature a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets, he will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to breach the city, trample it, and break in, basically. Then in verse 11, the prophecy changes its pronouns. It goes from he to they. Remember the first verse of the prophecy said, many nations. Then it highlighted Nebuchadnezzar for a few minutes. Now it moves on to a they. Next verse, they will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Literally, this means they will take the buildings of the city and throw them into the ocean. Now, we, we, we want specificity in prophecy. This is incredibly specific. They're going to take this. You don't do this in ancient warfare. There's no reason to take someone's city and throw it into the water. People just don't do that. Um, but that's specifically claimed in this passage. As I read on, verse 13, I will put an end to the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. They'll be bare. You shall be a place for spreading nets. You shall never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. Okay. What were the requirements, recap, of this Tyre prophecy? The requirements are, here we go, many nations will come against Tyre. Many, not one. It'll be like the waves of the sea are in sets. The daughter villages will be slain. This will be by Nebuchadnezzar. The destruction of the walls and the towers of Tyre will happen. Nebuchadnezzar specifically will breach the town. The city will be cast into the sea. Quote, they will do that. It will be like the top of a rock and fishermen will cast their nets. Where? Well, where the city is. They'll be fishing where a city is, which you don't fish on cities. That doesn't make sense, right? And the city will never be rebuilt. Let's break it down a little more specifically now. Many nations come against Tyre. Again, it had been occupied for 2,000 years. They come in different sets, like the waves of the sea, the daughter villages are slain by the sword, da 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 All these issues were done by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar specifically did this. So for 13 years, King Nebuchadnezzar sieged the city of Tyre. We, we have this in secular history. You're welcome to go look it up. It's not even hard to find. Nebuchadnezzar, for 13 years, had his army, and he was present too, around the city of Tyre. Now you might be like, Mike, how does a city last for 13 years of a siege? No one has 13 years of food stockpiled, right? Except for a few people I know. <laughs> I know a couple people who have that much food. Um, the problem is this. Tyre had the mainland city where the, the big bulk of the city was. Then they had this little island off, offshoot, little satellite location that was called the Island of Tyre. And what happens is because they're coastal and because the Phoenicians, the queen of the seas, they have this massive, powerful navy. Nebuchadnezzar comes around them and he sieges them, but he can't close the siege because of the navy of the Phoenicians. So what they do is they just keep shipping food in and shipping water in. And during this 13-year siege, the people of Tyre, this is really interesting history stuff, the people of Tyre start moving and relocating. And they go, you know what? We can't beat Nebuchadnezzar. His army's too big. But our navy's really powerful. So they move off to the coast. And this is when the people move from the mainland city of Tyre to the island city of Tyre. They start relocating. And so they move and they relocate. 13 years goes by. Finally, um, after they move and relocate, Nebuchadnezzar, he's like... A little disappointed let's just be honest he's a little disappointed because the people move off off about half a mile off coast and by the time he gets there by the time he gets there they're gone so he tramples through the city of tyre but it's empty and a lot of its treasures and things like that a lot of those have been moved off the coast and that's pretty much the end of the story with nebuchadnezzar this is where Aaron ra says hey prophecy failed 
because he didn't do all the other stuff. But this is where he's not paying attention to the text. The text said he and Nebuchadnezzar did every single thing about the he, right? But this is short-term prophecy. This is near the time of Ezekiel. This doesn't help us as much. We want long-term prophecy, and that's where the they comes in. So in the text, we have they, and this is the passage where it says the city will be cast into the sea. It'll be like the top of a rock, and this was fulfilled by Alexander the Great over 200 years later. 200, this is good long-term distance prophecy. Even the skeptics don't think that Ezekiel wrote this after the fact. They, they will agree with me. Even the cynics, even the Bible critical scholars will be like, yeah, yeah. They, they, he, you know, Ezekiel was written at the time of Ezekiel. This was 200 years plus before Alexander the Great. So here is a really interesting story in history. Alexander the Great, he shows up in 332 BC and they retreat again. He again comes around the city. They retreat once again out to the island city. And so Alexander the Great, he's not okay with that. He doesn't do Nebuchadnezzar's thing and siege them. Remember Alexander the Great, he conquered the known world really fast. Right? But he made an example of Tyre. What he does is he says, you're only a half mile off the coast. I'm going to build a bridge, specifically actually a causeway. And here's, a, here's a, uh, an artist rendition, <laughs> maybe, maybe more of a diagram, of what he did. He constructs a mole or a causeway where he builds, just throws into the water debris from the city of Tyre, from the, from the mainland city, and literally builds a walkway across so he can march his, on, his army across because he doesn't have the navy to be able to defeat the Phoenician military. So he goes in and he does this quite literally fulfilling the prophecy in Ezekiel about how the city will be cast into the ocean, about how the dust will be scraped and the timbers and their, and their stones will be thrown into the water. Alexander the Great literally fulfills this. Here's another just artistic uh, picture representing these things. We actually have a lot of details in history about this. There's a whole bunch more information on it I could share with you about how Alexander tried to come to Tyre and conquer it peacefully and how they, they killed his emissaries and threw them off the walls of Tyre, the mainland city. And then he decided to attack them and they ran away to the thing. And basically just really neat kind of epic, you know, they should make a movie off this. It really, or maybe they have, I don't know. Um, really neat stuff. Then there's, of course, the phrase, fishermen will cast their nets there. And this is a passage I think is frequently misunderstood. God said the city of Tyre would be cast into the ocean. And then he says, Fish, fishermen will cast their nets there. Where do, when do fishermen cast their nets? Casting a net is throwing it out into the water that it might catch fish. After the stones and timber of the city have been thrown into the ocean, fishermen quite literally throw their nets on top of the city to catch fish. The city's underwater. The city's underwater. That's, that's how the fishermen cast their nets there. Now, there's one particular uh, area. Okay, so backing up. Aaron Ra, he claimed that this prophecy failed because the island was supposed to sink. Now, you read the prophecy with me. Was there ever the phrase, the island will sink? No. It was the phrase that God would have their city cast into the water. The stones and timbers of the city would be cast into the water. Very different than the island sinking. That was Aaron adding to the Bible, not reading the Bible. Um, then we have this phrase, that the city will never be rebuilt. And this is where most of the debate is once you start presenting this prophecy to people. If there's one area where they will try to kick back the, the skeptics and try to say, no, 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 the Bible's not fulfilled, it's in this right here. And sometimes Christians have not done themselves any favors here because we don't know necessarily enough about history. Um, 
So Tyre will never be rebuilt. Well, what do we mean by rebuilt? Rebuilt just means to be restored, to return to a prior existing state. I'm not, that's not some special definition. That's just the dictionary <laughs> on, uh, on, re on rebuilt. And this is specifically the, 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 the Hebrew dictionary. The dictionary of biblical languages with semantic domains. That, that's what I'm quoting here. So the question is this, was Tyre rebuilt? Now, pause for a moment. If Tyre was rebuilt, you have to at least acknowledge it's kind of remarkable that over 200 years before the event, it was able to describe how some multiplicity of nations would come against Tyre and do this, take the city, throw it into the water, and then people would cast their nets upon it. Like, like is, not, is not your mind, you know, blowing because of this? Are you not mind blown? I am blown away by the implications of this, right? But, but it will nag at you. But, but was it rebuilt? And I would say, um, this is the photo you will find online that even some Christian ministers have used. They go, look, this is Tyre. In fact, there's the causeway. There's the causeway that he built. It's gathered sediment and sands over time, over the years. But you can look and see. There's really nothing there. It has not been rebuilt. But if you do a little more Google search, and if you wonder, why is this picture from 1930, right? <laughs> why is it so old? You will find that there is a modern day tire with over 30,000 people living in it. Here's a picture of modern day tire. And you can Google search this and find it pretty easily. How do I explain this? Now, here's where the real debate is. Is, is this a rebuilt tire or not? Well, in one sense, it's tire. And it's been built. But is is it a rebuilt Phoenician tire? This is the debate. And I have more information on this in a video I've linked in the description about Ezekiel's prophecy on tire. But let me just say this. Cut to the chase, right? Because I don't want this video to be too long. Um, Phoenician tire was forever gone. Tyre was the capital of Phoenicia. Remember? Phoenicia, queen of the seas. It was the one who governed all the trade in the, from the Mediterranean on inland. Um and, and in, into the east, this was the powerhouse of the day. Phoenicia was the world was a world power, and they were the impregnable and un, un, indestructible city. It was not just Tyre; it was Tyre, the capital of Phoenicia. After Alexander the Great destroyed and wiped them into the ocean, quite literally, after this, they were, there was never a Phoenician city of Tyre ever again. What Alexander the Great did was he rebuilt Tyre and he deported whoever he didn't kill, which was most of them. He just deported everybody. And then he brought in Greeks and he made it a Greek city and he built new city plans when they rebuilt Tyre, right? It was not Tyre anymore. It was now a Greek city specifically so it wouldn't be a Phoenician city. And this is what historians actually say about it. Let me read to you some quotes from what they say about this particular event, the re rebuilding, not really a rebuilding, replacing with something different, actually. Um, Alexander did far more against Tyre than Shalmaneser or Nebuchadnezzar had done. Not content with crushing her, he took care that she never should revive, for he founded Alexandria as her substitute and changed forever the track of the commerce of the world. This is from uh, 15 Decisive Battles of the World um, by Edward Creasy. Another quote, um, Two more quotes right here, and you can look at the, the references right on the screen here. But after treating Tyre with the greatest atrocity, Alexander rebuilt and replanted it that future generations might regard him as the founder of a new city. That it was, it was, this was a met, an intentional political move by Alexander to say, Phoenician Tyre's gone. This is Alexander's Tyre. This is the Greek Tyre. Um, 
Encyclopedia Britannica says Alexander replaced the population by a colony of Greeks or Carians with this memorable siege terminated the glory of Phoenician Tyre. It was gone, forever gone, not to be seen again, Phoenician Tyre. Thomas Summers says, having cleared the city of its former inhabitants, the Macedonian conqueror endeavored to repeople it by colonies from other parts and styled himself as the founder of Tyre. New city, new identity, new association. For the former city had been destroyed. It might be sought, but none could find it. It had passed away. This is from Tyre, its rise, glory, and desolation. Um, and you, you can look at the quotes and stuff. I have them on the screen there for more details. And what I would say here is um, on several points that hopefully you've picked up on, Aaron Ra has misrepresented the text of scripture. He said that the island was supposed to sink. That's not what it said. It said the city was to be cast into the water and fishermen would cast their nets on it, which they did. They literally, they're literally fishing on the city. And he goes, that city, the one I cast into the water, it's not going to be rebuilt. And sure enough, Anything that bore the name of Tyre was not Phoenician. It was not Phoenician. It'd be like if God destroys Washington and then there's someone rebuilds Washington, but it's like the the Chinese come and invade the U.S. and they take over and they blow up Washington. They make a new Washington and they design it all to look Chinese, you know, in its architecture and its associations and with its sculptures and its, um, its you know, whole like museums and all the stuff you see. If it was all Chinese now, you'd be like, that's not a rebuilt Washington. This is a replaced Washington. The old Washington's gone, never to be seen again. So that's the context of the destruction of Tyre. I think this is incredible evidence for God and for the Bible. And um, Aaron's best attempts, uh, which really, he's just echoing what every skeptic says about it, in my opinion, fail. And what's more important to me is this. In the video that he was sent, in response to his request, give me your best prophecies, he was sent my video. I deal with this in my video. And he didn't acknowledge it and he didn't respond to it. Why do I say that? One of my goals here, I'll admit it, is I don't want you to think that this guy is a good source. Maybe you're a follower of Arn Ra and you stumbled on my video. And you thought, you know, I don't really have the time to study all this stuff. But Arn, he's really smart and he's getting into it for me. And I, I think I trust him. You shouldn't. Okay. It doesn't mean he's lying necessarily. If nothing else, he's just not getting into the details. He's not carefully looking at the content. Basically not a reliable source. So did every part of the prophecy fail? No. No. Not even remotely. Um, okay. So this next thing is what I will call a rant. Aaron gets into a rant in his video. Um, a couple of them. <laughs> probably three or four of them. But here's one of them right now. My prophecies particularly appeal to the paranoid and are especially popular with conspiracy theorists seeking patterns that are not apparent to any rational person. Believers determine their interpretations by arbitrarily shifting from literal to metaphorical and back with no rhyme or reason or discernible distinctions, reading between the lines and then ignoring the lines, such that one verse is taken to refer to a whole other topic than the rest of the chapter just because it sounds similar to something else, as if every author of the Bible had attention deficit disorder. What I want you to catch from this rant is this. This is a powerful, powerful thing for some people. For some people, if, if a person can stand and mock and ridicule something, then it devalues that thing to that person. It's, it's almost like an intellectual bullying that's going on here, but this is just manipulation, right? For instance, um, he says that prophecy appeals to the paranoid. Prophecy appeals to the paranoid? 
this is nothing less than just a an ad hominem attack, right? Where you where you go to the man, you attack the person instead of the argument. Prophecy appeals to the paranoid. Like I'm not paranoid. <laughs> I'm sorry. He also says it's popular with conspiracy theorists. Look, I'm no conspiracy theorist. I get in trouble with conspiracy theorists because I, I discount them and I dismiss them frequently. And, and then they, they're like, Mike, look at this stuff. And, and I'm like, you know, I'm just not even interested in your conspiracy theories a lot of the time. And um, sadly, that's just my, my attitude about it. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe I dismiss them too easily. I don't know, but I'm, but it's just not my thing. Okay. I'm not into conspiracy theories. I feel like they make you into a gullible person. That's my that's my opinion. Um, maybe I'm wrong there. Don't don't discount everything else I say because of that opinion, but that is my opinion. But yeah, does prophecy appeal to conspiracy theorists? No. Um, this. I, I, what am I supposed to say? Like, where's your evidence for this? Like, where where do you where do you, how do you support this? Um, he also says that we as Christians, when we when we go for prophecy, we quote we arbitrarily shift from literal to metaphorical meanings in the text of scriptures. And to this, I, I just go. Look, I grant that there are lots of people out there who don't really care very much for whether they carefully analyze the Bible or not. But you guys, you know me, right? If nothing else, I care deeply about getting the right meaning out of the text and not forcing my interpretation on it. I care deeply, very deeply about it. I mean, consistent Christians, they go like this. The Bible's literally God's word. Who on earth am I to force my meaning on the text and put my words in the mouth of God? Like, what an insane thing to do. I care very deeply about things like literary genre and contextual interpretations and cross-referencing other passages in the book and in other books of the scriptures and just interpreting things correctly. Um, in my experience, I care more about that than any atheist I have ever seen online. I'm constantly having to correct them. That is not what the text even says. And um, sadly, it is very often, in my experience, the skeptic and the atheist who twist the Bible to mean anything they want it to mean, except now it's not to defend their theology, like a, a cult would, but rather to defend their skepticisms. They'll say the Bible teaches cannibalism and, oh, just weird things. So here's, here's the second rant. What the scripture actually says is seldom what it means to whoever believes in it. When it says this, it really means that. Connecting the dots between discordant verses and unrelated books by different authors talking about disparate things that are not all connected, but where devotees believe that every seemingly random coincidence is somehow intentionally orchestrated and all the evidence of reality is dismissed as only an illusion. Okay, you can see what I mean by it's a rant. So let me, let's, just, let's just kind of unpack a couple specific things because... What you have to do when people rant is either ignore the rant or slow it down and just take it point by point. So he says that the concept of the serpent and Satan, like he says, we, we randomly take disconnected things in the Bible and we make them connect. They're not really connected. Um, like if you study the Bible, you know that the concept of the serpent and Satan is in the text of scripture, right? First off, and like, I'm not making this up in Genesis three. Do you think it's a normal snake that goes and talks to Eve and tempts her in the garden. And does the Bible present it like, it's, and the snake, because it's like every other normal animal that came. No, it's like this serpent, this particular serpent was unlike everything else God had made. This was different. This was unique. And it comes in tempts Eve. Then later on, we get like, uh, for instance, in uh, Revelation twelve nine. You, you tell me, am I forcing this on the Bible? Or is this just in the Bible? Right, and that great dragon, that great 
that ancient serpent, right? That great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent right there, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. What, what was he? He was the deceiver. He deceived Eve, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, if you want, you can say, I don't believe the Bible. I don't think the Bible's true. But you can't accuse Christians of fabricating the connection between the serpent and Satan. That's directly in the text of the scriptures. So I think that's, why do I make a big deal here? Um, Aaron made a big claim, right? We just make stuff up. Christians don't care about what the Bible really says. We just make disconnected connections for no reason because we feel like it arbitrarily. And he gave an example. And I always like looking at people's examples. And his example proves him wrong in this case. Um, yeah. So Aaron paints me as a fool. I mean, if, if he's describing me in this text, I'm a guy who supports prophecy. In fact, I'm a guy whose video he was sent for this very video, right? And he paints me like I'm a fool. Like you're a fool if you if you just go to interpret the Bible and you make prophetic connections or something like that in it. And I'm I'm sorry. I, what do you want me to say to this? Like I'm not offended. I just I'm sad that it's so wrong. That it's that it's okay in many people's minds to to just treat Christians like they're idiots. How many people think Christians are just dumb? Christians are just dumb. And when they encounter an intelligent Christian, they're like, I don't understand. It must be a scam. It must be a trick. There must be something ungenuine about it. I would just say, you just can't even study the Bible and, and come to the conclusion that those who talk about things like atonement or messianic prophecies or expectations or um, the meaning of Passover, you, you, you can't act like we're just making this stuff up. This is in the text of scripture. And this is why people with just a Bible can come to the same core beliefs all around the world, right? They, the same core beliefs, maybe differences on what they think church government should look like or differences on, on things like... Uh, I mean, you name it, a lot of trivial secondary issues, but the core issues of Christianity are found right in the text of scripture, all there. Um, okay, I'm going to skip a few things that Aaron says. He goes and he talks about Nostradamus and Charles Manson, I'm not kidding, and the X-Files. And he, he, compares, he compares Christians finding prophecy in the Bible, I'm not exaggerating, to Charles Manson and his delusions about the Beatles. Um, this is not worth my time. If this is the level someone's operating on, you're on your own, buddy. You're just, you're on your own there. I, I don't need to rescue you from that kind of folly. Um, but then he gets into Zechariah 9.9, and this I love. Here's a Listen to what he says about Zechariah 9.9. I'm going to demonstrate that that's not true. Christians prefer to adapt Jewish prophecies for their own purposes. For example, all four Gospels point to Zechariah 9.9 as referring to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. However, again, this is a Jewish scripture, and the rabbinical interpretation is that the Philistines were supposed to be converted and the land of Israel enlarged by this prophesied king, but that didn't happen with Jesus. The story says he was rejected by rabbinical assembly, where fulfillment of this prophecy would have required Jesus to have been accepted. All right, he gave you guys, uh, let me pull myself up so you can see me on the uh, screen here. I didn't put myself on there earlier. Well, hello. Hi, everybody. Okay, so he gave his interpretation of this, uh, but let me walk through some of the claims he made first. He says, quote, Christians prefer to adapt Jewish prophecies. Now, I got to pause you for a second there. Christians, Christians, you know what this means? Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew, Messiah. 
Messiah. We're not adapting Jewish prophecies. We are believing Jewish prophecies. That's what we're doing, right? I'm a Christian. I believe in the Messiah. I have a faith that comes from the faith of Abraham. I'm a Gentile, not a Jew, but my faith is the fulfillment of Judaism. This is, this is just what it is. And so as a Christian, when I claim to be a follower of Christ, I'm literally saying I'm a follower of the Messiah of Israel. That's what I'm claiming, right? So we're not adapting Jewish prophecies. We're just believing Jewish prophecies. And the artificial separation of the two is, is, is just weird. And I wanted to point that out for you guys. Um, he says that Zechariah 9.9, the required, what's required to fulfill this passage is for the Gentiles to accept Messiah. Of course, that's happened. Um, um, and for the Israel to be enlarged, the borders of Israel to be enlarged. Now, let me just read to you Zechariah 9.9 again. What do you hear about Gentiles and the borders of Israel in this passage? Just listen to me, reading it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king's going to come on a donkey. The Gentiles have to receive him. Nope. He's going to enlarge Israel's border. No, no, it just says he's, then he's going to come on a donkey. That's all it says. It's just all it says. Um, but then he goes on to say that it's not messianic. Now, it's weird to me, first off, to, I mean, he claims it's not messianic. Did you, did you hear the, the quote, right? He goes, this isn't about Messiah at all. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. How can it not be about Messiah, yet also require that Gentiles accept Messiah and Messiah enlarges the borders of Israel? I don't understand that. But let's not quote from me. Let's quote from the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. This, of course, is a, an authoritative Jewish source. And what does it say? This is a non-Christian Jewish source. What does it say this passage is about? Zechariah 9.9. I'll just read the whole section. It says, Rabbi Alexandri says, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi raises a contradiction between two, de two depictions of the coming Messiah. And we get here, they're, they're debating in, in the Talmud, like, what? What exactly is the Messiah going to be like? There's, there seems to be two contradictory statements about him. It is written, here's one of the statements, There came with the clouds of heaven one like unto a son of man, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And that's from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. So they're going, hey, they recognize this is about Messiah. Messiah is supposed to come in the clouds of heaven, and he's called the son of man. But then they're confused because it's also written, quote, Behold, your king will come to you. He's just and victorious, lowly and riding upon a donkey, and upon the, a colt the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. So they have these, these two, I'll, I'll read the rest in a moment. They have these two conflicting statements about Messiah that they're going like, what do we do with this? And one since he's coming on the clouds with, with glory, right? And another since he comes lowly on a donkey. And so here was their solution, these non-Christian Jewish individuals uh, in the Talmud, they say this. Rabbi Alexandria explains, if the Jewish people merit redemption, the Messiah will come in a miraculous manner with the clouds of heaven. If they do not merit redemption, the Messiah will come lowly and riding upon a donkey. What is the point? The point is that the Messiah is in Zechariah 9.9. 9. The question wasn't, is this about Messiah? This is ancient rabbinical commentary, authoritative rabbinical commentary, which is what, which is what Aaron's appealing to, right? This commentary says it's about Messiah. The question is, how do we reconcile this? Now, that particular rabbi's solution was, 
depending on how worthy we are, he may come in the clouds or he might come on a donkey. Another solution would be he comes more than once, right? <laughs> he comes low on, low on a donkey and once high on the clouds. And, um, and that, of course, is the, the, the Christian understanding of that as well. So what am I saying? I'm saying, dude, it's messianic. You're, you're wrong. Aaron's wrong. And I, I'm guessing that he, his source here, and I could be wrong here, but I'm guessing his source is Tovia Singer because Rabbi Tovia Singer is like the source for everybody who wants to attack Christianity when it comes to prophecy. Um, but I think that there's a reason why he won't debate um, guys like Michael Brown and stuff who actually have studied the topic and are ready to engage on it. So, um, who's twisting the text? You accuse Christians of twisting the text, Aaron. I just read it. I read the rabbinic commentary on it. I'm consistent on both sides. You said the rabbi said something they didn't say. I showed you what they said. You said it was about Gentiles. I showed you what it said. You said it was about the borders of Israel. I, we just read it. It's clearly not. All right. There is more. There is more. A little bit more, and then I'll be done with this uh, Arn Raw video. There are also prophecies referenced in the New Testament that don't appear in the Old. And no one knows what they are because there are books referenced in the scriptures that don't exist anymore at all. How did the prophets not foresee that? Um, does it bother you at all that he has a big list of things going on behind him and you can't see any of it? <laughs> like, um, you're obviously not intended to know what this list says. You're just intended to know there's a big list. Trust me. Trust me. There's all these books missing from the Bible. Now, that's a whole different topic, books supposedly missing from the Bible. Um, I, I'm not going to even try to get into it, except to say the Bible mentions the existence of lots of books without declaring that they are part of the Bible, right? People who wrote the Bible knew that other books existed. It's not like they thought this was the only book in the world. Um, but anyways, this is super sketchy, right? And what is what this is, is... Aaron's um, being the, the tire of knots. This is what I call tying knots. Um, it's where you, you, you come and you sort of jumble up a truth and you, you get it all confused and then you just throw it at people and you're like, deal with that. And this is what sometimes people who want to attack Christianity do. Rather than giving careful, thoughtful reasons you can follow, there's big, bold claims with a lot of doubt and dispersion cast upon the Bible or cast upon Christianity. And then it's like up to me to like, pause the video and find all the points where he was wrong and then prove him wrong on every little spot. And the sad thing is, is that when you do this, you often find with, with, with skeptics that they don't care that you proved him wrong. Cause they're just going to say, there's going to tie more knots and jump onto another subject. And this is why I like to ask skeptics. This question I would ask this of any skeptic listening is what objection to Christianity do you really care about? Right? Like rather than how many, you know, vitriolic things can you say about the Bible? Like, what objections to Christianity do you really care about? Are you like, this objection is substantial. If you proved this wrong, it would mean a lot to me towards being more open or more confident about Christianity. Give me the things you really care about. This is the opposite of that, right? Aaron, I'll bet you if I proved him wrong on all the things on his list hidden behind him, it wouldn't matter one blink. But, um, but anyway, let's talk about airplanes. Here we go. Airplanes. And why did no one predict the age of automotive automation? All these ancient seers could foresee current events thousands of years into their future, but none of them noticed airplanes? Why is it that the Bible didn't predict airplanes or the internet or robots? And some people try to say it did. I mean, they, you know, when Daniel says, many shall go to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Um, but 
I'm willing to admit that's extremely vague. Okay, so whether the, whether where that may be applied to airplanes and transportation and the internet, um, it it it's too vague for me to be trying to present it as proof of anything. It's just very vague. So I wouldn't even present it because I'm trying to be consistent in in my qualifications for what proves the Bible true. But why would the Bible not say airplanes? Well, let's just consider it this way. If you think the Bible's main goal is to prove itself true to people living in the 21st century in 2018, like if that's its main goal, then definitely it failed for not prophesying airplanes. But if you think that the Bible was supposed to be seen as true to people living in the 1900s, 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, 1500s, and the people in 2500, if the Lord tarries, if you think the Bible is supposed to be true to all those people, then airplanes aren't helping too much, right? Because look at how long you have to wait before it's fulfilled. It's too far away to be of use for most humans in history. So it's just not smart to have a prediction about something so far in the future. What's great is when Jesus comes and the gospel goes out, we have already set in history, fulfilled prophecy that verifies the Old and New Testaments. And so um, it's helpful for the sake of proving the text of scripture to humanity, not just to you, 2018, searching the internet, right? It's bigger than you. All right, let's talk about Islam because we will get into um, Islam right now. The Quran has a lot of fulfilled prophecies, enough to warrant another video just to address them apart from the Bible. The Quran even predicted Trump. So are all you Christians going to turn Muslim now? Because if Quranic prophecy doesn't matter to you at all, then imagine how little your misinterpretation of Jewish folklore means to me. Okay, there's a lot of the, a lot of this, if you catch it, it's not just the claim, it's the your misinterpretation of Jewish folklore. Like we've all, I've already proven in like in this video and last week's video, multiple ways in which Aaron is misinterpreting the passages of scripture. And I'm giving an interpretation that's consistent with even ancient rabbinical literature, um, as well as the, just the context of the Bible itself. Um, and I've worked hard to try to do that, to bring you these quotes and share these things with you. Like definitely, you know, someone cares about truth here. Um, well, um, does the Quran matter right now? Uh, what Aaron says, and I've heard atheists do this once before, uh, well, more than once, but one in particular springs to mind, where they say, hey, the Quran's got fulfilled prophecy too. Now, Aaron earlier in the video said the Bible has no fulfilled prophecy, not a single one. And now he says the Quran has lots of fulfilled prophecy. Like, do you really mean that? Like, do you really mean the Bible has no fulfilled prophecy? The Quran has lots of fulfilled prophecy? Now watch Aaron's video because he does something really weird. He gives an example in the Bible of prophecy that, quote, is not good fulfilled prophecy because and it talks about how the, Israel, the nation Israel will come up in a day. And then to give an example, he gives two examples of fulfilled prophecy in the Quran. And his two examples, one of them is that the nation of Israel would, would, be, would spring up again, that God would regather the nation of Israel, that that's in the Quran. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The Quran is literally plagiarizing the Old Testament here, right? Literally just copying the words from Old Testament prophets into the Quran. And when it's in the Old Testament, Aaron says, not a good prophecy. And then it's in the Quran and he goes, yeah, that's legit. Christians, you should believe the Quran. You can't tell me to not believe the Bible because of, with that prophecy in mind and then tell me to believe the Quran with the same prophecy. Like, what kind of weird game are we playing here? I don't, I don't follow. 
and uh, and I don't think anybody else should follow either. Then he gives a second example of prophecy from the Quran, and it's that the Quran predicted Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Go read Surah 68. That's the passage, right? It's not even a very big chapter. It's like a page and a half. Go ahead, read it for yourself, and you tell me if this is an example that fits the qualifications we gave, right? Clear um, statements, and it was written ahead of time. It's definitely written ahead of time. <laughs> and that it can't be applied to all sorts of different things, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Show me, show me one, one legitimate fulfilled prophecy in the Quran that compares to Ezekiel 26 or Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53. Just one. I would love to see it in any work of any kind. Nostradamus the Quran, um, the Book of Mormon, uh, you name it. Let's battle this out, right? Let's, let's take these things and compare them and let the word of God reveal itself through it. So in conclusion, I'm gonna take your guys' questions in just a second. AJ, you could send those over. Um, any questions you have, drop them in the uh, comments section um, right now and I'll get those and try to answer them here towards the end of the stream. My conclusion is this. Aaron is more interested in tying knots He's not interested in checking his information. Aaron, if, if I try to give an honest assessment here, because I don't want to be rude or mean, it's certainly not my goal, but Aaron comes off like a zealot for atheism who doesn't care about truth as much as he cares about tearing down Christianity. That's how it comes off to me. Now, either I am elaborately scheming to pretend to be something I'm not, or I'm an honest, genuine guy who really looks at the evidence and says, this seems to confirm this is God's holy word. And look at how it stands up against the objections. I think it's pretty impressive. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. My favorite subject. All right, um, I'm gonna take your guys' questions now. So thanks for being here, by the way, you guys. I do super appreciate it. And I'm very open to hear. I, I'm hoping Aaron will write up a, a response to this and I hope that in his response maybe on on either his YouTube channel or on uh, and not because I want to get views from him I just want to hear his response um I'm interested to hear either that or he also has like a, a blog that he's got so either one I'm super interested please show me you're responding to what I've actually said and you're not just mischaracterizing me and turning me into a straw man that's what I'm interested in so um here's the questions from you guys all right from Juan uh, Polgarin. Hey, Mike, when speaking to atheists, should we work more on giving them evidences for the existence of God or give them the gospel of Christ? Example, explaining creation or explaining their need of a savior. Um, I think that there is no one pat answer for that. I'll say this. What people need more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evidences are secondary, in my opinion. But oftentimes... I think of apologetics and evidence as being, as being like the jaws of life. Like, you know what the jaws of life are, right? If you're in a car accident and you're trapped in your car, uh, the jaws of life come in and they, and they like, it's, it's like this, this uh, device that they put in the car and it can bend metal and rip open the car door to get you out. And so I think of apologetics like that as sometimes people are sort of like they're crammed into their unbelief and their disbelief or their skepticisms and maybe because of confusions, maybe because of emotional issues, maybe because of deceit, maybe because of sin. It could be any of those things or just lack of information. And um, apologetics or giving them reasons to consider that Christianity is true, it's like the jaws of life. It's like it cracks it open and then you can reach in with the gospel and see if they'll receive it. So I, I look at it kind of like that. Um, 
that uh, apologetics is an aid to getting the gospel to people. Now, in a YouTube video, I might spend an hour on something where I'm just dealing with one issue of apologetics, but YouTube videos are topical. They're there, people search, they get exactly what they need, they find what they need. But obviously the most important thing is anybody watching this video is if the Bible's true, that's, that's beautiful, but you gotta respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like you've sinned, you will stand before God and you will be judged for your sin and you're the bad guy in this scenario. The only way out is Jesus and his death and resurrection. He literally, literally paid for your sin on the cross so that you could be deemed forgiven because God will have his justice in this, in this world, but he loves you. So, I mean, obviously this is the most important thing is that apologetics leads people to the gospel of Christ. May God give you wisdom in your individual encounters, which one you have to cover. I don't personally have a policy that in every interaction I have to say the gospel with someone, um, although I do try to share it as much as possible, um, and I don't at all shy away from sharing it. I'm just saying I don't have that policy by itself. All right, Dustin Bass, or Dustin Busa um, says, uh, what do you think about the prophecies about prophecies from Revelation that are being fulfilled today? Do you think they have been fulfilled? Are these good to bring up in response to atheist refutations? Um, I do not think that the, that prophecies from Revelation are good to bring up. I think we should talk about clear... Okay, there's lots of prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled. Now, if you take all those and you narrow it down to which ones are like the most clear? Okay, which ones are um, clearly written far before the fulfillment? Okay, there's less of them now. Okay, well, but of, amongst those that are clear and written before the fulfillment, how many of those do we have sort of extra biblical verification or or extra, other than the text it was written in, we have verification that it happened. Now we have an even smaller set of prophecies. So I start to get narrowed down to a pretty narrow group of prophecies, and these are the ones I use in my witnessing. Revelation is not the passage I would go to. Um, I think, personally, I think most of Revelation's unfulfilled. It's yet to come. So my opinion on that. Um... From Michael Cato, says, with so many questions from skeptics online, how do you decide who to address and who not to? Oh, well, I'll, I mean, I address as many as I can. I mean, here's the thought for you is, do I have a good answer for this person or am I just saying stuff? <laughs> you should only address what you have a good answer for. Um, an honest answer, an answer that you'll look back a year later and be like, I'm glad I wrote that. That was a good answer. Also, I address as many as I can. You know, I, I think it's important. And sometimes, especially in a public forum, you're interacting with a skeptic, but there's like five, ten people following that conversation. They're not clicking like on anything, right? Because they're like, they don't want anyone to see that they're there. But they're following the conversation. Maybe you're answering it for them. Maybe you're helping them out, not even the, the person you're talking to. So it's really not a waste of time, in my opinion. Um, but it's, yeah, it just has to do with how much time do you have. I, I don't have time to answer every skeptic. I get, I get now people messaging me uh, more than I can handle, and I, I have to just pick. You know, I, I just can't respond to every message. So use wisdom and don't feel trapped. Uh, just, you know, try to be faithful with your time. So from Adam SE, uh, how do you ultimately measure whether or not your interpretation is correct? Um, for that, Adam, I would just, I'd recommend, and maybe you, maybe you know this stuff. Uh, I'd recommend looking up the term hermeneutics. You know, we've hermeneutics is, is the, the fancy term for it is the description for it is the art and science of biblical interpretation. You can have hermeneutics for other things too, but when we talk about theology, um, we literally have um, really worked hard to come up with lists of rules to make us consistent and contextual with our interpretations. And I never think my interpretation is right simply because it's my interpretation. That is never a good reason to think I'm right, right? Oh, I must be right because it's my opinion. That's folly. But rather, I look at the context. 
I look at the greater context. I look at the words themselves. I look at the, you know, just the same way that you'd read a newspaper and you go, how do I know that that newspaper was about the Knicks winning the championship? And you're like, well, because I read it. Like, in context, that's clearly what it was about. I mean, so, you know, I realize that, Adam, you, you do uh, street epistemology. It's hinted at in your name. <laughs> and I think you're on Twitter as well as Adam does SE, right? So um, uh, I, you may be hinting at something for me or trying to get me lead me somewhere with that. And But I'm just answering it plainly. Yeah. Good Bible study techniques, hermeneutics, looking at things consistently. And if you just go and watch one of my Bible study videos, like where I just do a verse-by-verse teaching, and see for yourself if I'm not actually doing this, if I'm not looking at it in context, trying to understand just what it means right in the passage. And then from Tom Sawyer, uh, morning, Mike, on, uh, I guess this morning where you are. Uh, oh, it is, that's right. It's like early in the morning where you are. Uh, morning, Mike, on what basis are modern-day prophecies not as authoritative as those in the Bible? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one assumption here is that when you say modern-day prophecies, you're talking about if someone, um, like, tr- from the Spirit of God has a prophetic word, like they're able to, like God shows them something and they speak forth that thing. You know, maybe they say, this is going to happen. There's going to be a war and, you know, God's telling us as a church we need to get out of town or something like that. Um, how is it not as authoritative? I'll say this. We're on, we're, this, we're, this is a new subject which I'm totally okay with covering now, but I want to this, just say this is a different subject. This is kind of an in-house discussion between Christians about whether or not prophecy can happen without it being scripture. I think that in the Bible, we have a good case for believing that, that not all prophecies are scripture. That there's a difference between scripture and prophecy. Right? All, all scripture is prophetic in a sense, Right? but not all prophecy becomes scripture. How do I, how do I know this? Well, we read about how there were prophets who went and shared things that were not written down. We just know they went and prophesied over here, but we don't know what they said. We don't know what they did. Now, I don't think scripture was lost. I don't think we, we lost some of the Bible or something like that, but there is a group who thinks that if anybody modern day speaks in the name of the Lord, we're supposed to write that down and make that standard like scripture for all of the church worldwide. And I think that that is, um, wrong. I, I, I see no reason that if God gives me a word where he tells me and my wife, like, um, let's say that he says like, Mike, you know, you guys, you need to move to Alaska and you're going to plant a church there. And the Lord says, this, why do I write this down and give it to every human, every Christian on the planet? And they have to somehow try to figure out how it belongs with the text of scripture. Like, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. So I guess I would have to hear a reason to not <laughs> A reason to, to, to view, to take the other side before I would change my opinion on this. And I've never heard it. Never heard it. Um, so if there's if there's any other questions, you guys can put them through real quick. Um, I thank you guys for, for joining me today. This has been um, the second and final of my R&RA refutation. I don't plan on camping out on this forever. I just thought it was worth doing. I think that R&R represents not just himself, but what a lot of atheists and skeptics are doing and the way that a lot of them are thinking. And I think that this is a good a good thing to cover because it's going to answer not just his video, but a whole lot of content, a whole lot of stuff around the world there, a lot of kind of nonsense that goes around. So uh, let's see. I do see a question from uh, Kaylin Van Conant. She says, so on the, um, so on the same page as modern day prophecy, do you believe God can speak outside of the Bible through his creation? Um, I believe God, I mean, can speak any way he wants. So, 
he can speak internally to you directly if he chooses, but he can also speak through creation in a sense, except creation is not as clear as the written word or spoken word. So I look up at stars and I go, I can tell God's glorious, right? I can tell if he has an incredibly powerful, but I don't look at the stars and think, I can tell that on Tuesday I'm supposed to eat a hamburger. You know, like, like it's obviously not communicating that kind of clarity to me. Um, truths about God, but the specificity and clarity that I get from the written word is, is much more. Here's a question from Not a Theist. <laughs> That's an interesting name. Um, Skylar Fiction has told me he emailed you for a debate. How about it? So, I, so Skylar Fiction is another YouTube creator who's a, an atheist, I believe. Um, and he actually asked if we would have a discussion. And I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And he scheduled it. And then just recently sent me a message going like, looking forward to the debate. And then I, I thought, oh, it's a debate? What are we debating? So I have yet to find out. In November sometime, we're supposed to be going on his channel. And we're going to be talking. Also, let me mention, I was interviewed today on Leighton Flowers' channel. Some of you guys know Leighton Flowers from Soteriology 101 podcast. If you're interested in hearing that discussion, we talked a lot about Calvinism. Um, and that discussion is in the video description. It's in the link, uh, right in the video description there. So you're welcome to look at that. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if, if I'm actually doing a debate with Skylar Fiction. He has not been very clear and upfront with me about what he wants. And if I, if I think I'm walking into some sort of weird trap, I'll be honest, like, why would I, <laughs> I want to have like respectful dialogue with people. I don't want to, I don't want to be trying to be like Indiana Jones going through the, the, the temple, avoiding the traps. You know, that's not really my favorite thing to do. Um, although I have done it, <laughs> I have definitely done it. Um, yeah. So if some of you guys know Aaron Ra, send in my videos and ask for a response. That'd be great. And, and those of you guys who know, um, you know, Doug from, uh, Pine Creek and Cam, if they could respond to my other video, that would be nice too. Cause I spent some time on it. I was hoping to hear back from them. All right, you guys, um, that's pretty much all I've got for you today. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. AJ, thanks for being here next Tuesday. We'll pick up. I'm not sure what we'll cover exactly. I got a couple ideas, but I don't want to, uh, to, uh, make a commitment that I'm not really sure about. So I got one more question. I just see one popping up in the comments here. This is from uh, Dimos Z. What are your thoughts on pro-Palestinian Christians who vilify the modern state of Israel repeating Soviet era blood libels? Well, that's a pretty, that's a lot of stuff in that question. So let me say this. Um, I can, and, and I do believe that God has a future plan for Israel nationally. And I have videos that talk about this and they're automatically demonetized by YouTube because they mention Israel, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, and, uh, and, and th those videos, they, they go into detail on that. I do believe biblically that there's, God has a future plan for Israel. I do not think that means that we have to support everything Israel does, or we have to pretend Israel's always the good guy. I also recognize that I am getting a distorted version of the news from a lot of the, the Palestinian information and sometimes from the Israeli side as well. And we do good to not overgeneralize on this issue, but to at least say, you know, I may not know what's going on over there. I may know God's future plan for them. That doesn't mean it's going to happen this century even. I don't know the story. So at least to be cautious and gracious. Um, I know God's love for both Israel and the Palestinians, for the, the, the Arabs and the, and the Chinese and the Russians and even the Californians. Um, and... Uh, we do good to put the gospel as a much greater issue than those other things. 
And um, Skeptical Dead, no, I'm not a dispensationalist. <laughs> so, so yeah, thanks guys. Uh, that's this has been really fun. I've enjoyed it. I unfortunately, since I had mic problems in the beginning of the live stream, I will have to go back and delete like the first minute of the live stream, which means the live chat will disappear. So all your thoughtful comments will go into oblivion. I'm sorry for that. That's not on purpose. That's just the way YouTube does it. So, um, so thanks guys. Have a fantastic day. Lord bless you and thank you for joining me.